Let's pray. Oh God, could it happen again? Could you really do it all over again? If it doesn't happen again, we will be here forever. Teach us today in Holy Scripture, we pray and let it be clear. We ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Someone has once quipped that the definition of insanity is when you repeat the same behavior over and over again and expect different results. It would be rather foolish, would it not, for the church to keep repeating our past history all the while expecting that one of these days, one of these days, we're going to get different results. In just a few days, our little community of faith will gather from around the world in Atlanta, Georgia, to elect new leaders and to conduct the business of this church. What kind of leaders would God have us to choose? Shall the church go on repeating the same behavior over and over again and expect different results this time? Or is it time to learn a lesson from our past and change our behavior? The Spanish-American philosopher George Santayana was right, wasn't he? Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And repeating the past over and over again is hardly a sane strategy when we are desperately needing different results. For that reason, you and I have plunged into a new mini-series that we're calling the Santayana Factor, Tales of the Kings, five ancient kings of Judah whose reigns are morality tales for those of us in this generation. Five long-ago stories with one very contemporary appeal, hoping that somehow we might quit repeating the same behavior while wishing for different results. Today, King number two. And from his reign, seven life lessons. In fact, what I'd like to do is write two of the lessons down before we even meet the king. So take your study guide out right now, please. Just jot down the first two lessons before we even are introduced to him. Reach into your worship bulletin, please. Our friendly ushers are already coming your way. If you didn't get one, hold your hand up. You're going to want these seven life lessons. Hold your hand up all the way in the balcony in the back. Make sure that you have one of these. And I want to say to those of you who are watching on television, we're delighted to have you. You're going to want this study guide. Seven life lessons. Whoever you are, wherever you are, these lessons work. So you can get the same study guide. Let me put our website on the screen for you, and you can go to that website. The study guide will be waiting for you there. www.pmchurch. You see it there at the bottom of your screen. www.pmchurch.tv. You're looking for the miniseries, The Santayana Factor, Tales of the Kings. This is part two. If you missed part one, the podcast is sitting at that website waiting for you. But today is part two. When you, when you click on the part two, it'll say study guide. You click there, you'll have the same study guide. You can jot these seven life lessons down. And I trust that we will not be the same for having discovered these lessons. All right, let's plunge into it. We haven't even met the king, but lesson number one. Jot it down, please. Lesson number one, start strong with God. Start strong with God. Jot in those words, please. Start strong with God. Lesson number two, let's put it up. Lesson number two, even good people flub up. Even good people, how do you spell the word flub? It's there on the screen for you. Even good people flub up. Open your Bible with me, please, to King number two, Second Chronicles, chapter 18. You've you got to track this story. If you didn't bring a Bible, grab the pew Bible in front of you. I'll give you the page number. You can find it there in the dusty heart of the Old Testament. It's page 307, Second Chronicles, chapter 18. 
Let's pick it up in verse uh, 1. 2 Chronicles chapter 18, verse 1. I'm in the, in the uh, New International Version. 2 Chronicles 18, verse 1. Now Jehoshaphat, there's our king. He's going to be front and center all day today. Now Jehoshaphat had great wealth and honor, and he allied himself with Ahab by marriage. Let me tell you what that would be like. That would be like Barack Obama marrying the daughter of, of Osama bin Laden so that they could finally get along. I know that that just feels, just, it just feels awful to even say it. President Obama is already happily married to Michelle, but he adds another wife just to mend the fences with an enemy. That's what they used to do. Which doesn't make it right today, but that's what they did. So this is good King Jehoshaphat allying himself with wicked King Ahab. How good? How wicked? Let's find out about Ahab. We'll put Ahab up on the screen here. First, King, First Kings chapter 16, verse 32. Ahab set up an altar for Baal, the, for, the male fertility god from the Canaanite culture. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built. God-fearing Ahab builds a temple for Baal in Samaria. Now notice this. Next verse. Ahab also made an Asherah pole. That's the male phallic symbol. He made an Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. You got a wicked king. You got a weak king. You got a bad king. That's Ahab. Now, what's Jehoshaphat like? Well, the story, his story actually begins in chapter 17. So let's get the, at least the introduction to his story. Just turn a page back. Second Chronicles chapter 17. Let's pick it up in verse 1. Jehoshaphat, his son, that's the son of Asa. Asa was our, our front and center king last week. Jehoshaphat, his son, succeeded him as king and strengthened himself against Israel. Verse 2, he stationed troops in all the fortified cities of Judah and he put garrisons in Judah and in the towns of Ephraim that his father Asa had captured. He's strengthening the northern wall because Israel, the kingdom that Ahab rules, is on the other side of the wall. He's strengthening himself against the enemy. Ahab, verse 3. Ah, but the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because in his early years. Why did you have to put that in there? In his early years. The beginning of his administration. The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because in his early years he walked in the ways of his father David. It followed. He did not consult the Baals, verse 4, but he sought the God of his father and he followed his commandments rather than the practices of Israel. The Lord established the kingdom under his control and all Judah brought gifts to Jehoshaphat so that he had great wealth and honor. Verse 6, his heart was devoted to the ways of the Lord. Furthermore, he removed the high places and the Asherah poles from Judah. Not like Ahab, no sorry. There it is, lesson number one. Start strong with God and Jehoshaphat does just that. In fact, jot this down. Verse 6 from chapter 17, fill it in. His heart was devoted Jot that down. His heart was devoted to the ways of the Lord. It's very interesting that word for devoted in the Hebrew. It actually means his heart was, was, was high, was exalted. He was high. Get this, folks. This leader was high on God, which is what we need our spiritual leaders to be today, don't we? High on God. Sometimes we mistakenly conclude that the most effective leaders are those who are high on polity or high on policy or high on theology or high on orthodoxy. Look, there's nothing wrong with being high in any of those realms. But given the times that we are poised in as community of faith, as poised on the borders of eternity, God's people need leaders today who are high on God 
who are passionate about Him and passionate calling their people to follow Him. Jehoshaphat was high on God. His heart was devoted to. It was high on the ways of the Lord. And by the way, forget our leaders. That's, that's for you and me as well. Not just leaders here. God wants a people who are high on Him. God wants men and women and, and young adults who wake up first thing in the morning and they're saying, you know, I'm so high on God, I want to be alone with God first off. They clear their schedule so that they're first with God, high on God. That goes for us all. Lesson number one, start strong with God. Lesson number two, even good people flub up. Oh my. Go back to chapter 18. This is a major flub for Jehoshaphat. Watch this. Chapter 18, verse 1. Now Jehoshaphat had great wealth and honor. We just read this a moment ago. Read it again. And he allied himself with Ahab by marriage. Now, verse 2, some years later, he went down to visit Ahab and Samaria. He actually goes, he went up. But when you're in Jerusalem, it's all downhill from there. So the Bible always says when you leave Jerusalem, you're going down. But he actually went up. He went north to Samaria. And he went up to see Ahab and Samaria. And look at, boy, talking about laying out the dog. Victuals and delicacies to boot. Ahab is ready. And Ahab slaughtered many sheep and cattle for him and the people with him. You think Ahab was just having a little friendly tape-to-tape banquet together? Are you kidding? Their ulterior motives going on here. Ahab isn't interested in any kind of a friendship here. He's desperate. And by the way, that's a, usually if you want a man's signature, go to his stomach first. Go to the stomach because when that stomach is nice, contented, and full, a man will do about anything you ask him to do. Isn't that true? That's exactly what Ahab does. He goes to the stomach, fills him up. And then at the end of the meal, notice the end of verse 2, Ahab urged Jehoshaphat to attack Ramoth-Gilead. That's a Syrian outpost. Enemy. And Jehoshaphat, when he hears Ahab, and here comes the question from Ahab, Ahab's king of Israel, verse 3, asked Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, will you go with me against Ramoth-Gilead? And Jehoshaphat replied, I am as you are, and my people as your people, we will join you in the war. Major, major mistake. I tell you what, when your stomach is full, never make a major decision. So they take you to some big banquet, they wine and dine you, and then they want you to, they want you to then make a decision. Never make a decision when your stomach is full. You know why? Because your brain has no blood in it. It's all down in your stomach trying to digest it. Your brain is half asleep, and the conscience even is, a, is weaker in that slumber. And Jehoshaphat says, hey, Wonderful meal, Ahab. Of course. Your people, my people, we're all in this together. And he makes the deal. Big mistake. But then verse 4, somehow, maybe dinner's wearing off. Jehoshaphat finally turns to the king and says, Hey, but wait, 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 wait a minute. Verse 4, we've got to first seek the counsel of the Lord. I forgot to do this. Ahab said, I knew you were going to do that. I got my men already ready. He brings in 400 prophets. They've already been cued. They've already been rehearsed to give the exact answer that Ahab needs. And so Ahab brings in the 400 prophets and he turns to the prophets here in verse 5. So the king of Israel brought together the prophets, 400 of them, and he asked them, shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead or shall I refrain? And to a man they answered, go, O king, go, for God will give it into the king's hand. Hallelujah, go. Dinner's wearing off, and Jehoshaphat has enough sense to smell something fishy. He says, you know, isn't this something? All 400 of them have the same answer. And so Jehoshaphat shoots back to the king, verse 6. But, 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 king, is there not a prophet of the Lord here whom we can inquire of? You got any real prophets around here? 
It is a sign of genuine spiritual leadership for the leader to genuinely seek the counsel of the prophet of God. In our age of leadership where the prophet of God is sometimes trotted out as window dressing for a leadership style that is bereft of her counsel, where depending on the audience, a devotional reference might be inserted to show the leaders bona fides with that particular audience. Jehoshaphat's query is worth pondering as a very necessary spiritual leadership marker for those who would lead this community of faith. Is there not a prophet of the Lord whom we can inquire of? We've hired a hundred consultants. We've retained a score of firms. We've multiplied committee actions. But is there not a word from the prophet of God to guide us? Lesson number three, jot it down. The most effective spiritual leaders believe the prophet of God. Not as window dressing for their speechifying, but as a modus operandi for their leadership. Ahab didn't believe. No. So Jehoshaphat comes to Ahab and says, Hey, wait, wait, hey, wait. King, king, king. Verse 6. Look, is there not a prophet of the Lord here whom we can inquire of? And Ahab shoots back in verse 7. The king of Israel answered Jehoshaphat. Now that you ask, look. There is still one man through whom we can inquire of the Lord. But I tell you what, I hate him. Because he never prophesies anything good about me, but always bad. He's Micaiah, son of Imlah. And the story turns comical. And I love Jehoshaphat, who's got enough clarity to, uh, to, to admonish the king. king. Ahab had just said, man, I hate this guy. He never says anything good about me. And the king, Jehoshaphat, shoots back. Oh, the king should not say that. Don't say that about God's prophets. So the king of Israel called one of his officials, verse 8. He said, all right, bring Micaiah, the son of Imlah, at once. Verse 12, the messenger comes and finds Micaiah. He, he, the messenger who had gone to summon Micaiah, by the way, gives, I have a little royal court advice to give you, the messenger says. Look, as one man, the other prophets are predicting success for the king. Let your word agree with theirs and speak favorably. You know what? Just go, go with the flow and ride with the tide on this one, will you? And Micaiah fires back. The resolution of every preacher wherever she preaches, every preacher wherever he preaches, this is the resolution. Micaiah fires back, as surely as the Lord lives, I can tell him only what God wants. If it's in this book, I can tell you. You want me to stick to this book? I'm fine. Don't you ask me to shape my message for your agenda. And when he arrived, verse 14, the king asked him, Micaiah, yo, Shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead or shall I refrain? Obviously, with a voice dripping with sarcasm, Micaiah responds, oh, Attack and be victorious, O King, live forever, for they will be given into your hand, of course. And look at Ahab. The king said to him, verse 15, How many times did I make you swear to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? You're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. He gave him the answer he wanted. He says, you're not telling me the truth. Give me the answer I don't want. Mercy. Then Micaiah answered, okay, you want the truth, king? Verse 16. I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd, which is a polite way for saying the king is dead and everybody's gone. They're just wandering now. And the Lord said, these people have no master. 
Let each one go home in peace. I repeat, talking about damned if you do and damned if you don't, such is the fate of a prophet even today. If the prophet tells us what we already know, we don't quote him. If the prophet then tells us what we don't want to know, we don't quote him. She's damned if she does and damned if she doesn't, just like Micaiah, who, by the way, was terribly right about the fate of the wicked king. And by the way, right here, right here, good but presently failing King Jehoshaphat is given one more opportunity to speak up on behalf of God. You know what? He could have said, hey, time, time out, time out. Ahab, no way, Jose. We're not going to war. I'm not joining you. The prophet says, no, we're not going. He could have spoken up here, and guess what? He would have spared the life of Ahab. But because he didn't have the guts, he goes ahead anyway. And he nearly loses his own life. Tomorrow, Ahab will be killed. Jehoshaphat will be miraculously spared. And then the failing leader comes hobbling southward, back limping into Judah, his kingdom, and another prophet meets him. Chapter 19, verse 1, And when Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, limped safely back to his palace in Jerusalem, verse 2, Jehu the seer, the son of Hanani, went out to meet him and he said to the king, Yo, king, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Because of this, the wrath of the Lord is upon you. Verse 3, there is, however, however, O king, some good in you, for you have rid the land of the Asherah poles, and you have set your heart on seeking God. Because even when we flub up, hallelujah, God doesn't reject us. This is the good news. God could have ridden him off, said, yep, you're gone. No. I love this from Steps to Christ. You have it in your study guide. You have to fill it in. Steps to Christ, that classic. Jot, this, jot these words down. The character is revealed not by occasional good deeds and occasional misdeeds, but by the tendency. Write that in, please, will you? By the tendency of the habitual words and acts. Who has the heart? With whom are our thoughts? Of whom do we love to converse? Who has warmest affections and our best energies? If we're Christ, our thoughts are with Him and our sweetest thoughts are of Him. All we have and are is consecrated to Him. We long to bear His image, breathe His Spirit, do His will, and please Him in all things. End quote. So here's the question for you, sir, and for me. Who has your heart? Madam, who has your heart right now? Who has your heart? Who has my heart? Aren't you glad that losing your temper... Aren't you glad that losing your patience? Aren't you glad that even losing your way for a while doesn't mean God writes you off? I can't use Him anymore. I can't use her anymore. Hallelujah. There's something good in you. I recognize my spirit in you. God says. The story of Jehoshaphat is good news, proof enough that you can't talk God into rejecting you. Nope. Unless like Ahab, you really do wish to reject Him and go it alone. Which, of course, doesn't mean that we can skip learning that lesson. In fact, would you jot this down? Lesson number four. If you fail the test, you'll have to take it again. That's a law that you learn in a university very quickly. Very quickly. You fail it again. Again. It's the same way with the kingdom of God. 
You fail the test, you'll have to take it again. That's exactly what's happening here in chapter 20 now. Pick it up. Chapter 20, verse 1. After this, the Moabites and, and the Ammonites with some of them, Meunites, came to make war with Jehoshaphat. Verse 2, some men came and told Jehoshaphat, O king, a vast army is coming against you from Eden, from the other side of the sea. It's already in Hazazon Tamar, that is Engedi. Alarm now, verse 3. Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. I remind you, the last time Jehoshaphat has been faced with an enemy attacking, he put all his trust in a human alliance. You know what the letter grade he got for that test when he failed miserably? Guess what the letter grade was? F, failure. But that's okay. God says, I'm going to let some time go by and I'm going to give you that same test again. He gets the same test. Just like God kept doing with Peter, by the way. Remember Peter? Oh, my. Here is gung-ho Peter. Jumps out of that fishing skiff faster than you can say, Simon Peter. And he's walking on water. Until he takes his eyes off of Jesus and psh, he about drowns, dripping wet. Jesus takes him back into the boat. Test number one, letter grade F. You failed. It's okay. God isn't writing you off when you fail. He doesn't write me off when I fail. You just get the test again. Test shows up again. This time in the form of a pesky little fireside maiden who keeps bugging Peter about being a follower of this Jesus of Nazareth. Aren't you? Aren't you? Aren't you? But he turns the air blue with obscenities and is denying oaths. I never knew this man. Three times. Test. Letter grade, F. Failure. God says, that's okay. We'll give him another test. Time goes by. Only this time it's Peter himself who's under arrest. They're grilling him before the tribunal. This would be the perfect time for Peter to cave as he always has in the past. But guess what? He doesn't. You know why? Because between tests, he went to Calvary. He met the Savior. A Savior whose relentless, strong love would not give up on Peter. Hey, come on, Pete. Pete, Pete, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me, Peter? And now, with the flying colors of God's grace, Peter passes the test. I tell you what, ladies and gentlemen, it's good news that you get to take the test over. It's bad news when they say, the test is gone. You're out of here. The good news is we get to take it over. Because when you pass this test, listen to me carefully, when you pass this test, there is a brand new chapter with God just on the other side of the test. But you have to pass the test first. So you're going to keep getting it. I'm going to keep getting the same test till I pass it by His grace. I love this desire of ages. Would you uh, fill this in as well? That classic on the life of Jesus. Day by day. Isn't this beautiful? Day by day, God instructs His children by the circumstances of the daily life. He is preparing them to act their part upon that wider stage to which His providence has appointed them. Now, hold on. It is the issue of the daily test. Write that down. Life is filled with daily tests. It is the issue of the daily test that determines their victory or defeat in life's great crisis. That's the whole point. We're like California. We're like California. We're waiting. We're sitting around waiting for the big one. Everybody's sitting around waiting for the big one. You got a big one coming in your life, and I got a big one coming in my life. But there will be a series of tests before the big one. That's why the tests are so important. Only through realizing our own weakness and looking steadfastly unto Jesus can we walk securely, end quote. 
That's what Peter had to learn. That's what Jehoshaphat had to learn. How does he do with the test this time? Look at verse 3. Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire the Lord and he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek Him. Then, verse 5, Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in the front of the new courtyard. And Jehoshaphat prays one of the great prayers in Holy Scripture. O Lord, God of our fathers, are You not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in Your hand. And no one can withstand You. Oh, our God, did You not drive out the inhabitants of this land before Your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, Your friend? God, we are children of Your friend Abraham. We're friends too. They have lived in this land, the children of Abraham, and they have built in it a sanctuary for Your name, saying if calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in Your presence before this temple that bears Your name, and we will cry out to You in our distress, and You will hear us and save us. Look at verse 12. Oh, our God, will You not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that's attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon You. Amen. The prayer ends. But notice verse 13. All the men of Judah, with their wives and children and little ones, stood before the Lord. Lesson number five. Write it down. The highest role of a spiritual leader is to call God's people to prayer. The high, there's no higher role that a spiritual leader has. The highest role of a spiritual leader is to call God's people to prayer. Whatever happened to those long ago days of corporate fasting and prayer in the church? Are we wiser? Are we more knowledgeable now than our spiritual fathers and mothers so we don't need those seasons anymore? More able now? Are we more gifted to, now to extricate ourselves from any crisis that comes our way? So why bother to call the church to prayer? Why do spiritual leaders today hesitate to call their people to prayer and fasting anymore? Does it feel too manipulative, too, too quid pro quo with God? Like, you know, God, if we do this, then you'll have to do that. Do, do that. Is that why we hesitate? We just don't want to box God into a corner? Are we afraid that somehow the people will perceive that as leaders we've blown all the professional opportunities we've had and now we're shoving God into the crisis in order to cover our own failed attempts? Is that it? Is fasting and prayer too much like extreme unction? You know, like last rites? Nobody wants to admit we're in that much trouble, so let's not do it. What do you say? Are we afraid of what people will say? Labeling us as extremists or, or fanatics or, or right-wing reactionaries. But then again, i got to ask you, why should we let people's misinterpretations rob us of what clearly could be a collective win-win with God? What if there were spiritual experiences God could give His people only through corporate and collective fasting and prayer? No other way will it come to you. What are we missing then? All Judah 
The entire community of faith is called a prayer. All of them. Isn't it the role of spiritual leadership to educate the people to tell us why this would be important? To lead the people in matters of, matters of earnest collective praying? Or are we to wait for the people to determine the need of prayer? For me, look, for me, to act as if this were business as usual today would be the height of arrogance or ignorance. Wouldn't it? For me, right? Given my convictions. Admittedly, a call to prayer and fasting is an admission of deep need. But it is only Laodicea that would be brazen enough to declare, I have need of nothing. Of course, this is a time of deep and earnest need for divine intervention and guidance in the life of our faith community. We are facing a sea change of leadership. Would that not be reason enough for God's people to be called to prayer? This last Monday, the pastors of the Pioneer Memorial Church met with the chaplains of campus ministries at Andrews University. We talked about this very need. And we voted to set aside Sabbath, June 5, as a day of fasting and prayer for our campus and for our congregation. A day of special prayer on behalf of the world church that we love and that we serve. A day just like Judah of old in which we earnestly intercede with God for His divine guidance and supernatural intervention in the upcoming General Conference session in Atlanta so that leaders of His appointing will be chosen and strategies of His anointing will be voted. And so we'd like to invite you and all of those who are joining us now through this telecast nationally, globally, doesn't matter where you live, who you are, We'd like to invite you to join us in setting aside a Sabbath, June 5, as a special day of fasting and prayer. i got a cousin who's president of the Hawaii Conference. His name is Ralph Watts III. Ralph and I were talking this last week. Ralph said, Dwight, I'll join you. Our whole conference will join you. We'll call June 5 a day of fasting and prayer. Why not? What do we got to lose? Is this somehow out of... Out of What's acceptable? Should we not do this? You're listening right now. You're listening on a podcast right now. I'd like to invite you to send that podcast to your pastor. Say, hey, pastor, what do, you, what, do you, what do you say? June 5. I mean, just a few weeks before Atlanta. Why not? We could do it in our little church. Pass it on to somebody. What would be wrong? For the community of faith banding together at this time in history. You know why Jehoshaphat was alarmed? Jehoshaphat was alarmed because he was facing a crisis. Let me give you a definition of a crisis. A crisis is that which is beyond your capacity to manage. If you can manage it, it's not a crisis. It's a challenge. Jehoshaphat is facing a crisis. Not unlike the slowly accumulating crises that are lining up to face the church of God today. Intellectual crises that threaten to divide us. Racial crises that could separate us. Moral crises that threaten to rend us. 
Not to mention the ecological and economic crises that threaten our planetary way of life and survival. I mean, they're just, they're just lined up. They're just lined up. Not to mention our compelling mission to reach 6.7 billion Earth children in one generation. Let's be intrigued with the strategy that Jehoshaphat has chosen to face this crisis. Let's ask ourselves, shouldn't we follow his example? Look at We can't set the agenda for the church beyond our walls, but God holds us responsible for the church within this campus. So your chaplains and your pastors have joined together. I met with the elders. They're, they're, they're at a retreat right now with Bill Knott. I met with the elders in between services. Made the appeal to them as well. June 5, Sabbath. A day of fasting and prayer. He said, Dwight, I'm not into fasting. Well, you don't have to be in the fasting part of it then. Be in the praying part. Unite together. Why not? If ever there were a compelling hour of history, when uniting our voices in corporate prayer would be appropriate, it would surely be this hour. And what should be the response of God? Who knows? Maybe He'll answer our prayers mightily as He answered the prayers of Jehoshaphat and His people. Can you believe that? I mean, look at them. No sooner have they, no sooner have they concluded their prayer. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. Then the Spirit of God falls upon that prayer meeting and a young adult jumps up in the middle of the prayer meeting and brings a message from God. You've got to see this. Look at this. Verse 15. He jumped up and he said, O king, live forever. Listen, King Jehoshaphat. Verse 15, and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours but God. Look at verse 17. You'll not have to fight this battle. Take up your position. Stand firm and see the deliverance that the Lord will give to you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Get out to face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. And notice the response of the community of faith. Jehoshaphat bowed with his face to the ground, verse 18, and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down to worship before the Lord. And some Levites, I love this, from the Kohites, or the Korahites, jumped to their feet and praised the Lord, the God of Israel, with very loud voices. They turned it into a praise service early the next morning, verse 20, as they're leaving for the desert of Tekoa. They're setting out Jehoshaphat standing up on the walls, I imagine, and he's crying out to them, verse 20, Listen to me, Judah and people of Jerusalem. Have faith in the Lord your God and you will be upheld. Have faith in His prophets and you will be successful. And then after consulting with the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise Him for the splendor of His holiness. And can you believe this? They went out at the head of the army. They're in their choir robes. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for His love endures forever. And when they arrive on that brow and they look down to their utter amazement, the entire, the entire coalition of crises is gone, leveled, by the God, they have spent the day seeking earnestly in prayer. Single-handedly, God did it. Lesson number six. Write it down, will you? Lesson number six. Our extremity is God's opportunity. No question. There's nothing we face that God not, has already made the solution for. Lesson number six, our extremity is God's opportunity. And finally, number seven, which means it is time for the church to pray. This has to be the right time. This just has to be 
the right time. I want to end with this. The prophet of God, didn't, weren't these words written a century ago? Fill it in. God was the strength of Judah in this crisis. And He is the strength of His people today. We are not to trust in princes or to set men in the place of God. We are to remember that human beings are fallible and erring and that He who has all power is our strong tower of defense. In every emergency, we are to feel that the battle is His. His resources are limitless and apparent. Apparent impossibilities will make the victory all the greater. Can't reach this generation on the entire planet in one generation. Apparent impossibilities will make the victory all the greater. So we must pray. Judah stood before the Lord. I want to stand as Judah did. I want to invite you to stand with me right now. Let us just stand before this God. Stand before Him. Lift our hearts up to Him. Our minds up to Him. Let us call upon the God of our fathers and mothers. Let us call upon the God who has raised up this community of faith. Let us call upon Him who is still omnipotent. Who can turn apparent impossibilities into grand victories for His kingdom. Oh God, we stand before You like Judah of old. Men, women, children, it doesn't matter. We stand We stand before You. We know not what to do. And so our eyes are upon You. We've got a string of crises lined up. We don't even know the magnitude of what we're facing. Dear God, what will it take? It surely will take a people who cry out to You for deliverance. And so we stand before You. Before June 5, draw from our hearts an earnest praying, a passionate seeking after You. And then, O God, do whatever it takes. Do whatever it takes so that You will be exalted and Your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. O God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. We call upon You on behalf of this community that we love. Let's conclude this prayer by singing it together, hymn 103, the great prayer of Isaac Watts. O God, our help in ages past.
And now to Him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to His power that is at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.